Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am beyond honored to be speaking with Danielle Smith. She is the author of our May book club pick, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. Danielle is a longtime music fan essayist. She's the former editor at Vibe and at Billboard. She's the host of the Black Girl Songbook podcast. And that's just some of her wildly impressive resume. She's intimately connected with the genre and artists she examines in her book, including Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Janet Jackson, Gladys Knight, and so many of these other incredible women. And together, we talk about the toll of crossing over the erasure of Black women in pop, and the reason we need to celebrate the women who are at the center of American pop music. This month's book club selection is Danielle's Shine Bright, and we will be discussing the book on May 25th with Novena Carmel. Quick reminder, every single thing we talk about on today's episode and every episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and you want more of it, join the Stacks Pack. That's our exclusive community for all you book lovers out there. We have a Discord community where we talk about books and other things. We have a monthly virtual book club conversation and bonus episodes. Plus, you get discounts on merch, shout outs on the show, and more. And not to bury the lead here, the Stacks is an entirely independent podcast. And in order for me to make this show every week, I need the help of listeners like you. So if you want, to hear more of this show every single week, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And thank you to our newest members, Jeff M., Jamie Clay, Beth Ann Ray, Trisha Nositi, Demery Michaels, and Jill Munzer. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the Stacks Pack. You know I love y'all. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Danielle Smith. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. This month's book club author, Danielle Smith, is here to talk about Shine Bright with us, just so that everyone knows it is nonfiction. There aren't really spoilers, but we are going to try our hardest not to give away any of the really juicy details of the book so that you must read it. So, Danielle, welcome to The Stacks. I am so happy to be on The Stacks. I'm so happy you're here. I cannot tell you. I just, I loved this book so much. I I think that your 
just like such an incredible human and your story and your writing and the way that you brought all of these women to life and just everything. I, I was so taken by this. Um, but for people who haven't read it yet or, or aren't familiar, can you give them in about 30 seconds or so? Can you just tell them about the book? Uh, Shine Bright is a, a merge of memoir and biography. It tells the story of some of the most important Black women in the history of pop music. And interwoven through all of that is my own story. I'm finally claiming my own story as a Black woman in pop, as the former editor of Billboard, former editor-in-chief of Vibe, and just the person that has been writing about music for the last now almost three decades. So one of the main, I think, through lines throughout the book is this erasure of Black women in popular music. So I guess my question for you is, when did you actually realize that this was happening? When did it click in your mind that Black women's stories weren't being told or they were being erased? And then when did you decide that it was something you wanted to devote a huge portion of your career to correcting? Wow. I don't know that there was such a moment. And I know also that I didn't plan any of this in advance. It would be really wonderful for me if if I had known when I was in my early 20s that I really deeply understood the erasure of Black women in, in music and in culture, and I was going to take that on as my like my career goal or you know what I was going to be doing for the rest of my career. When in actuality, no, I got into music to cover rap music. I got into music to cover hip hop, and the, I was covering the scene in the in California back when hip hop wasn't even claimed as a real music by the by the mainstream. So I've always been an advocate of music that is underloved and undercelebrated by mainstream audiences. And I think I began to realize when I probably was just riding around as a freelancer in my late 20s that when you pitched stories about men, those were accepted. Hmm. When you pitched stories about women, there was so much conversation that had to be had about <laughs> whys and the wherefores and did they do this and did they also do that? But have they charted? Are they platinum? Have they gone on a global tour? Well, what's going on with them? And why aren't we talking about her husband? And why aren't we talking about the drugs? And, and it was just kind of like, okay, but these Black women are human beings. Right. And I just started in some ways feeling very protective in some ways feeling very much like I wanted to interrogate also their stories and their whys and wherefores, but they were worth the space regardless. And that's what I was really into. Yeah. There's this one moment in the book where you talk about going to a club on Tuesday nights in Oakland um, with your grandma, not going with your grandma, but you're talking to your grandma about going. Yes. And your grandmother is like, oh, you know, who's organizing this? And you're like, grandma, stop being so like, Dumb. <laughs> it's just a party, <laughs> Granny. Like, <laughs> and then she fills you in oh, yeah. on this backstory of like why it was Tuesday nights because that was the night that Black folks could go, and so this party has actually been going on for way longer. And there's like all this missing history. And to me, that story is sort of like the thesis of the entire book, right? Like to me, it's like you're doing for all of us 
what your grandmother did for you in that moment and saying like, this isn't an accident. Like these women were actual musicians. These women were producers. This is part of the history. They come from a lineage that starts with Phyllis Wheatley. And like, you can take Mariah Carey at face value or you can take Mariah Carey as like so much more. And I, I don't know if you thought about that story as being like really integral to the text, but for me, it like, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh. No, I'm so glad that you noticed that story. And I'm sending a prayer up to my grandmother right now because I know she's so happy that I remember it the way that I do. I think of that story almost weekly. Like I think of that story all the time. It isn't just central to the book to me. It's central to my life and the way that I view culture and the way that I try to look beyond what is on the surface, especially because with my grandmother, her name is Lottie Charbonnet Fields. When I was talking with her, I was just so sure of myself. Yeah. Yeah, I just I'm putting mascara on in the bathroom mirror and my grandmother's just nudging me and I'm just like, oh, and <laughs> I'm like, grandma, I know what I'm talking about. It's just like the really cool party. It's like and I remember I was like, it's organic. I remember yeah. I said that word. It's just organic. <laughs> we all gather there on Tuesdays. And she was like, no, ma'am, we had to gather at that place on Tuesdays because it was the only night that black people were allowed when we all had to go to work on Wednesdays. And so it was kind of wonderful and it was kind of awful. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of, to me, the story of Black women in music. It's kind of wonderful, but it's kind of awful when you look at it, the way Black women in music have been treated. Yeah. I mean, so I also grew up in Oakland. Um, I also live in L.A. now. As I was reading your book, I was feeling like this is a little too, it feels like a little too close to home for me. Like I was like, get it, you know, very emotional. Um, We can talk about this later, but actually my father passed away the exact same day as Whitney Houston. So I feel like an extra special closeness to Whitney in her, like there's just so many things in your book that I was just like, oh, like in the heart. Um, And my family's also from Louisiana originally. So there's just a lot of things. But one of the things that struck me is someone who, you know, I like pop music a lot. I love black women. Like I'm very into it. And there were so many people that you talked about that I knew the music and I didn't know their name. And that is that speaking to that same like kind of wonderful and kind of awful. Like I could not have told you Marilyn McCoo. But of course, I know the fifth dimension. Of course, I know, you know, Aquarius who doesn't. Right. Yes. And I do want to talk about her a little bit because I have so many questions. Uh, (laughs) But like and I didn't know that Stephanie Mills was the same Stephanie Mills you know, like I like I knew like the from music. the Wiz. Yeah, I just didn't put it together. Wow! And so you're making me so you're making me so happy right now because okay. there's some because sometimes in my own head I'm I'm writing and I'm like, do I really need to write this because I feel like everyone knows this already. No. Everyone, do I really need to go into that? And it's like, because I feel like everyone knows that. And it's like everyone doesn't know that. I'm so happy that you're confirming that no. for me. Totally. I mean, I'm 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 a little younger. I'm a millennial. And so like a lot of it was music that I heard, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't music that came out in my lifetime. And so it was like, of course, I know let's hear it for the boy. But I didn't know anything about Denise Williams. Like I didn't know her story. I but I love the song. Like I used to teach it when I was a dance teacher. Like (gasps) I love it, but I didn't. You know what I mean? So like there were so many moments for me in the book where I was like, or you would just mention a person or you would mention a song and I'd be like, oh, like I, I don't think that I knew who Herb and Peach or Herb and Peach. Like I, Peach I, isn't I, Herb? Oh my I've girl, never, okay, I've never heard all, their names before, taking, but I knew their music. I am taking with me forever 
after this moment, <laughs> Urban Peach. That is really, <laughs> that is going to stay with me for so long. And I'm not mocking at all. I'm not because there are people of my grandmother's generation that I can say the same things about. Yeah. Or my mom's generation that I could say the same things about. And it's just wild to me that also you know those records, right? You know Reunited, yeah. you know yes. Shake Your Groove thing. Of course. Thing, I know you all know of the music. Things. I was literally like, wait, who wrote this? Like, if you had asked me, I would have said, I have no idea. But I know the songs and I can sing every word. You know? and, that's the and that's the power of Black women in music also. And that's the erasure. And the thing that's even triple erasure in Peaches and Herb is that there's only one yes. Herb Fame, as his stage name is. There's only one Herb, but there's been six or more Peaches. That's it, that was blew my mind. Also, that's sort of like Temptations, like right, like the, there's like all these Temptations. Yes, it's crazy, but it's like these. There's these number one pop singles, right? These are big records. It's so much work, especially in that era, the seventies and eighties for a black act to become number one pop. Mm -hmm. These are huge accomplishments for Marilyn McCoo and the Fifth Dimension, for uh, Linda Peaches Green from Peaches and Herb and Herb fame. These are huge, major accomplishments. And I just feel like there's people from that era who are white or white and male, and we know their names. Yeah. Oh, Everyone yeah. knows Karen Carpenter's name, right? Yeah. But Reunited is the number one pop. Shake Your Group thing, top of the pops. And we're like, who is that again? Because these people were not written about in their time a lot. They were yeah. not featured like so many white acts of the same stature on the covers of magazines like Rolling Stone, Spin, Time, Life. They were not there. And these are the spaces where people get lifted up to the status of genius in our culture. Right. And so it's criminal to me. It's criminal. Was it difficult for you to write about the history of these people now after time had passed? Because so many of the stories of artists, they're happening like concurrently in their lives. Like these white artists you're talking about, they're being written about in real time. So for you to go back and sort of write these features essentially on these, on these artists 30, 40 years later, was that, did you find that challenging as far as research and all of that? I found it fun. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that um, I found I did a lot of work um, actually through the DSPs, through the digital service providers, the streaming companies. Um, there's so much information to be found there. I was very intent on trying to talk to the people that I felt it was important to talk to newly. But I also wanted to do the research and find the ways in which these women were spoken about and were speaking about themselves in their heyday. Mm -hmm. I think um, nostalgia and reminiscence is amazing and important, but I also think it's super important to know like what Gladys Knight was saying about herself when she was 27 years old. Same yes. for Ella Fitzgerald, uh, same for uh, Marilyn McCoo, same for a lot of people. Um, because this is when, as women, you know, as humans, we're in, we're coming of age. Many of us are at the height of, of the things that we most dreamt about when we were kids. Maybe not the plateau or the zenith of our career, but some of our wishes are beginning to come true. And there's a certain highness to that. There's a certain, if we're lucky, a certain like surge of confidence that, and, and fearlessness that's in that moment. So I wanted to find what people were saying about themselves in that moment. I went to old magazines. I took it to the microfiche. I took it to YouTube, 
for mm-hmm. old videos with like 412 views. Um, <laughs> and I took it there and I transcribed. I had great help from uh, research assistants and and my husband yelling at me, did you listen to this one? Have you heard that? All that kind of stuff going on. But I actually was just, what do you call it? I was like, I was suffocated by all of like it. Immersed. And I, immersed in all of it, like underwater, flying over it, like everything. I just loved being surrounded at all times um, by Black women and the stuff that they made. Yeah. I, I mean, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, I have to ask Danielle, is there a Spotify playlist for the entire book? Yes. It's coming to yeah. I okay, just actually I need it. the way there is the way that it's. <laughs> I think I'm going to put it out next week. Is okay. it's not for the whole book. There's actually a playlist for every individual chapter. Okay, great. So I'm going to release those because so many people have said I'm listening to the music as I'm reading the book. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to the music as I'm reading the book, and one that means beyond to me. Like it's. I'm like, I want to just pound my fist on the table like with happiness because that's what I want more than anything. I want for people to be listening to Marilyn McCoo. I want for people to listen to Mariah Carey before Mariah Carey was Mariah Carey. Mm-hmm. I want people to experience that. I want people to listen to Janet Jackson's first two albums, right? Mm-hmm. Not just one. Uh, she got to control, but she had two albums before that. That they're up and down, sure, you know what I mean, (laughs) in quality. But there's some cute stuff on those albums. Dream Street, like there's cute stuff. (laughs) So it matters so much to me that people are listening to the music as well as reading the book. Yeah, I, I I have a group of people who are like my inside supporters. They're on Patreon and they're called the Stacks Pack. And we have yeah. a Discord. And as, as I was reading, I found like one, but it only had 16 songs. And I was like, someone, I'm too far into the book to go back now. But one of you needs to make this playlist for us because we need it. It's, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Okay, I'm so yes. glad to hear that. Um, okay. I You are a person who is in the music world. You know. So I want to hear you tell me how much stock do you Danielle Smith put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the pop charts, the R&B charts, the Grammys. How important is that to you when you think about the music? That's a tough one because um, I say it in, in Shine Bright. These are flawed metrics. They are. Right. Right. These these metrics, uh, like the history of music in this country, are reflective of the history of segregation in this country. So it's very difficult to be like, oh, my God, rah, 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 about some of those awards. They're flawed metrics, but to me, um, especially I used to be editor of Billboard, they're flawed metrics, but they're the metrics that we had. Right. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't have more. I'm not saying that we shouldn't lift like um, the Soul Train Awards and the BET Awards and the Latin Music Awards and things of that nature up to even bigger spaces in culture because we should, mm-hmm. but they matter to me mm-hmm. because this is where the genius gets distributed. This is where the, 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 the trophies are handed out. This is where um, it's not a gold star for everyone, but it's a gold star for you because you're excellent. What you made, mm-hmm. what you created, what you sang, what you wrote, Uh, what you played, it was the best and it was judged by your peers. I want those institutions to be more fair to Black and other marginalized communities. 
And I think the way to do that, one of the ways to do that, I should say, is to hold them accountable for the way things have gone down in the past. Mm -hmm. And I consider that to be my business and really always have. Personally, I'm fascinated by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are many places I'm fascinated by when people win things, when Black people win things in mainstream spaces. I'm fascinated by what they say. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by acceptance speeches. Mm-hmm. Incredibly. There's many places in Shine Bright where I go to the acceptance speech. I'm always like, let me, let me go see when uh, this, this girl won something because I know she came out of her face either aggressively or passively or passive aggressively. <laughs> Right. Or I know there was like an emotional moment that we didn't all pay attention to Mm -hmm. or a detail that wasn't seen, even if it was a gown that was chosen, even if it was just how a person walked out, who they thanked, any of it. Because those moments for black people in these mainstream award spaces, when Mm -hmm. they receive their platinum albums. I remember when Cardi B first went platinum, I was still living in New York and I called up to Atlantic and I was like, are you guys doing a ceremony at the office? And they were like, yes. I was like, I'm coming up there. (laughs) I'm coming up because I wanted these moments mean things like to to black women. Mm -hmm. For everyone to gather in your honor and say, you lady are fucking fantastic. Right, right. Like, it's 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 criminally rare. And so I do love, like, the history of these spaces, the history of the Grammys, the history of the Rock Hall, the history of the American Music Awards, the history of Oscars, all these places where this gold, these gold stars are handed out. Because this is where American culture lifts up its geniuses. And Black People, Black women are not there nearly enough. I always remember Spike Lee when he said it. He said, we was robbed. And I think he said it for everyone. He could have said it for any number of his movies. As many times as he was nominated. He said, we was robbed. And I, it, it, it just reverberates in my, in my head and my heart. For me, I just think about like how as a lay person, I think about awards and like how I especially with music awards, how I just like feel like the Grammys are so racist. Like that's just how I feel. And like reading in the book that Mariah Carey didn't win any Grammys with Daydream. With fantasy. You say Daydream. I say fantasy. She didn't wait. Isn't the album Daydream? Yes, but I'm talking, well, she was nominated in the album category and the song category. So I'm just like, that I mean, I meant that year of all those songs from that. Yes. Yeah. Like that's there that night. Oh, my God. If you had asked me before I read the book, I would have been like, yeah, of course, I'm sure she won for something. Like, I mean, hello. Like, how could she not? And I guess I just always have known that these things are racist and and hate us and like don't want us to win. And obviously, like, fast forward to Beyonce, you know, like. It, yes. So for me, and like, I think about the Oscars, too, and like the Golden Globes and all of these awards. But the difference for me between the awards and the charts is that I not being an insider, I just always believed the charts were, you know, standard, you know, the same. It's like if you play, if your albums played the most, your songs played the most, it's on the charts because I had no idea. Obviously, now I know this. And also being in the book world, I also understand this about the New York Times bestseller list. Mm. I thought that was the same thing. I thought Mm. all of these metrics were legit. 
And I didn't realize that they were all manipulated in the same way that the awards are. And so now it's hard for me. I don't even know how to explain it. It's hard because I'm told that, you know, the Beatles are X, Y, and Z because they charted this many times or they won this many things. But I've always known in my heart that I don't think the Beatles are that great and they don't feel that great to me. And now I'm realizing that maybe they weren't as great in their time as I was told, you know, and so like it's really hard. It's hard to grapple with that. I wish I that just, people could see me dancing in the background yeah, right now. Yeah. I feel vindicated in a lot of ways, you know? I mean, you should, because the thing is, you know this by instinct. Yeah. You know that the Supremes by, in, you know, by instinct that the Supremes were battling the Beatles pound for pound with yes. number one hits and radio play and number one hits and radio play. And, and the Supremes are not lifted up to the same status of genius that the Beatles are. Right. They just are not. We have a joke in our family that, Every version of a Beatles song that's covered is better than the original. Girl, listen, and I think I have a whole playlist called Black Beatles on Spotify, which is well, just I need, covers. I need you to, need you to send me that, to please. please send it's it to me. It's just a bunch of covers of blacks, of black people doing Beatles songs. And like you're it's Wilson Pickett. It's just it's better. You know, like he's just doing the Beatles better. Uh, <laughs> Nina well, Simone, that- she's just doing the Beatles better. Like. Stevie Wonder, he's just doing the Beatles better. You could go to Earth, Wind & Fire, Earth, Rita Wind, Franklin. Like, the whole thing. It's just, and like, I get it. People love the Beatles. Apparently that documentary on them was lovely and made people like them more. But like, I just always believed that my taste was wrong or something. Like that I wasn't, wasn't. getting something. But I it wasn't. wasn't. I was it being wasn't. like gaslit by the you billboards. Were, and it's there's crazy. A, I, I, can, I quote, um, there's a professor... Um, his name is Eric Weisbard. He's actually married to Ann Powers, who's that lead music critic at uh, oh. NPR uh, Music. And Eric and Ann and I have known each other since forever. And Ann, Eric has a great book. And one of the lines in the book is, America's Top 40 is not America's Top 40, if it ever was. Mm-hmm. It's always manipulate has been manipulated. Yeah, that's in the book, I think, that line. That right? It is, yes. Yeah. Yes, I quote Eric in the book. And it's he's a professor of American studies and the charts have always been manipulated to reflect more whiteness and more maleness. And you said also older, right? He said older, wider and like softer. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And it's you understand like the way the charts used to work. There used to be the like the real charts, the mainstream charts, the pop charts. And then there were the race charts. Right where the black music competed against only each other, really. Mm-hmm. And the white music can, competed only against each other, just the way baseball was in this country. Right. You, had the, right. you had the Negro Leagues and you had the, the real Major League Baseball, so to speak. Um, even though, of course, Major League Baseball had to go to the Negro Leagues and, and right. recruit people into Major League right. Baseball, right. Um, right. as we know. Um, but it's like they used to call it the race charts, but, you know, of course, this was in the era of segregation. And so they were also called the Negro charts and they were called the other N word charts also. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were not looked upon in any way as good or as special or as dynamic or as genius as the people on the white slash pop charts. Mm-hmm. And it's just that's where all that idea of like music crossing, crossing over, over. Right. And my thing with that has always been like, did Jackie Robinson cross over to MLB or did he go for equality? Right. Did he go to play before the biggest audiences and make the kind of money that is worthy of his skill? Right. But it, I feel like if you think of crossover as, you know, meaning not just like 
taking your talents to the white side, but mm. also some sort of like, it sort of feels like some sort of assimilation or like whitewashing happens to that person. Like, especially in Jackie Robinson's case, it's like he did sort of cross over. He was forced to dull his light and it ultimately killed him at a younger age. You know, like all the stress and the racism, like he was, I feel like sometimes crossing over means like changing who you are. And I feel like that's really sad to me also that like, in order to cross, like for Selena to cross over, she had to sing in English, right? Like she couldn't just take her bops over there. She had to like change fundamentally part of who she was or like to reacclimate herself to be worthy of white audiences, worthy, of course, in air, air quotes. Um, but I feel like crossing over is like a little more cynical than just being being accepted by the mainstream charts. I don't I don't view it as being accepted by the mainstream charts. And I do think that the stress of it will kill you. I think it pretty much killed Whitney Houston. Yeah, I do. But I do not think that there is this wrongness or assimilation. I feel like it's ambition. I feel like and Whitney Houston has has said it. I wasn't crossing over. I was going for, I wanted to be equal. Right. I wanted to play the biggest arenas. Right. I wanted to be on all of the radio stations. Right. I wanted to have access to all of the things that could make me who I wanted to be. And I wanted to be a global superstar. The thing about the R&B charts is that wonderful things have and will continue to happen there. Mm-hmm. But it's as is the, the R&B charts can so often be as was the Chitlin circuit. Or as I mentioned, the Negro Leagues, Mm -hmm. it's like separate and not equal. Right. And so it bothers me that just in the decade, the 80s, when black people began taking over the pop charts with Michael Jackson, with Whitney Houston, with Lionel Richie, with Diana Ross, that all of a sudden the idea of being a pop star became a negative thing. Because when being a pop star meant you were white or you were a rock and roll star, then it was wonderful. It was everything to which all musicians aspired. But as soon as some blackness walked up into the pop Mm -hmm. room, then it was like, well, it isn't cool anymore. Mm -hmm. Your music is sappy. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Let me tell you something. They tried to do that to the Dixie Cups as far back as going to the chapel and mm-hmm. going to the chapel. And they are enunciating every word in the way that the white artists were enunciating every single word in the pop uh, songs of their era. I don't see. I'm Maybe I'm different, but I don't hear assimilation. I hear I can do that, too. And yes. if that if that's what it takes for me to get where I'm going to get, then believe me, I'll walk through that door. And believe me, once I'm there, I'm going to act exactly as I want to. I agree with you. I'm not saying that the artists thought that they were assimilating. I'm saying the people that accepted them, like the crop, like the people, the white people who who welcome them into the mainstream, forced them to like be smaller or like belittled them once they got there. I, I think I'm saying something they, no, similar. They did. I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. I, I didn't mean the assimilation was coming from Whitney or Jackie. I meant that they wanted to be equal and they wanted to be great. And so they took their talents and they had the ambition and they went there and then they were 
they were assimilated. You know, Whitney, you know, Janet talks about like wanting to get skinnier or like they asked her to oh, go well, on a diet yes. and all that stuff. I That's mean, what I mean. I don't mean that the black folks were assimilating. I mean that the white folks forced them to, you know, do things or 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 asked of them to do things that they are. They, you know what I mean? Like they felt yes, the pressure. I, do. I think there I mean. were so many rules and regulations with yes. regard to how black people can act in white spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. But I, I think do, that definitely takes a toll. Oh, I I know I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's unfortunately loads of dead um black stars uh yeah. to back that up for us as as evidence. Yeah. But I really do believe that there's a spirit of reparations that runs through yep. all of pop music. Yep. I yep. think sometimes when we hear it and we wonder, what is that? What is that magic that we hear? What is that thing that just goes zing or or it makes us feel so special? There's a spirit of black stars and pop music getting back, unfortunately, not for the people that originally lost it, mm-hmm. but at least for themselves and them fa- and their families. Yeah. Getting back what was stolen from the pioneers of blues and rock and roll and jazz in this country. And 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 also even just in the in the 1960s, in the in the soul era, it's like people were literally just. It's not just them that were stolen for. It was like them and their kids and their kids' kids were stolen from, mm-hmm. and just the money was stolen, uh, artistic credit was stolen, status with regard to genius and culture was stolen. These things are heartbreaking, man. These things are heartbreaking. And I know so many people that I of the hip hop generation, Gen X, I guess we could call it that generation in music, who were very meticulous about their money and where they charted and how many Grammys and things that they received or didn't receive because they're working off of history. Mm-hmm. They're winning Grammys also for people that didn't receive them when they should have received them in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like, it can seem a little grabby sometimes, you know what I mean? It can seem a little bit like, oh, he or she is just all about the money or all about the pop stardom. I'm always like, is that the only thing, though? Mm-hmm. Or are there levels to it? Mm-hmm. Are people looking back and saying, I don't want to happen to me, you know, what happened to Chuck Berry? Ella, Ella Fitzgerald got out of this game alive and well and sitting on all her money. But that's rare, man. That's rare. Yeah. So it's like, no, I I refuse to really judge. And that's why my book is very specifically a personal history of Black women in pop. Mm-hmm. It's because of I am very interested in the ambition and the creativity and the work of Black women. And to me, that's what pop is. Yeah. This sort of brings me right to Marilyn McCoo and the Fifth Dimension mm-hmm. because her story is different than a lot of the other women in the book. She comes from a more affluent background or more middle class background. She has sort of an interesting relationship to blackness and the way that black people received her and the way that white people received her. I have to be honest, it was not until I saw Summer of Soul this year that I knew that the Fifth Dimension was a black group. I always thought they were white. I just assumed. I, But I also only knew them from Aquarius, Let the Sunshine. And I didn't realize their other songs um, that I also knew. I just didn't realize it was the same band. What do you think her story says about success and ambition and the white gaze? Because I think it does say a lot about that. <laughs> There's a, such a complicated story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Fifth Dimension 
And I tried to outline it as best I could and shine bright. And to me, though, in some ways, they're still a mystery to me. Yeah. You know, Marilyn McCoo came from an upper middle class family, the kind of families that was, you know, their social moves and their evening activities were documented on the pages of, of Jet magazine. You know, everybody went to college. Everyone was, you know, having the really good jobs of the era. Uh, she was a beauty contest winner, obviously a tall and striking and beautiful girl. She did not want to, and her cohort in the fifth dimension, they did not want to be put into a particular category of blackness. Mm-hmm. Their elbows were bumping up against what they felt was a very narrow definition of black music. Mm-hmm. And they did not want to be a party to that. I think the nuance in their argument was not heard in the middle of the the civil rights movement. Right. I think, frankly, nobody had time for that a lot of times on the black side. Right. I, there was a particular Ebony cover that I referenced, I think, in Shine Bright, where there's this picture of the fifth dimension, you know, standing in the middle of a suburban street in their little space age outfits and some kind of little choreography move. And they look fantastic. They do look like the future. They look like in Vogue or something would look if, if you know what I mean? If in Vogue had some male members, um, but they just looked amazing. But like the cover lines on the cover of Ebony or something like why the riots are happening throughout the cities. <laughs> Like right. Black America is burning. It's like, so it was very difficult, I think, for people to take the time to say, well, you know, theirs is a nuanced argument. Yeah. Not when songs like What's Going On were coming out. Right. Like there right. was n- not a lot of space for it. And, you know, I think their politics are different than maybe a lot of Black people's politics at the time. Um, they were the kind of people that showed up at the Nixon White House and entertained there. So it was... uh this is a complex situation. And I always try not to be judgmental, mm-hmm. especially when I think just about the work that they put in. Mm-hmm. When I think about the way that I think that the fifth dimension wasn't everywhere they could be because it was in the interest of the record labels for the fifth dimension not to be seen that much because mm-hmm. people, they sold more records with people wondering, I heard they were black. Are they? No, they couldn't be. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh my God, I didn't know. I mean, there's a whole history of, not in particular to the to the fifth dimension, but to, you know, black artists not putting their photos on the covers of albums um, at the record company's request because they know in the record stores of back then, you know, white people wouldn't buy the albums just because a black face was on the cover. But then I also know, as I outlined in Shine Bright, that at Woodstock, where they did not appear, there's all different, you know, different counts for the however many hundreds and thousands of maybe a million people that were at Woodstock. And after Joe Cocker said, it started raining. So there was a little break before the next, you know, group would be ushered to the stage. So people are wet and they're in the mud and they're bored and they're wanting their heroes to come out. And they just started singing. Aquarius, spontaneously. Right. At this event that is vaunted throughout musical history <laughs> as like one of the greatest events, one of the, definitely one of the, maybe the greatest live event in the history 
of American lives. Mm -hmm. And how often do you hear in the talk about Woodstock that there was spontaneously hundreds of thousands of people burst into song singing, uh, let the sun shine in because it was raining outside. Yeah. And it's just like, so I get it. Girl, why did y'all have to go to the Nixon White House? Why <laughs> why were y'all at the Bush White House? Like, girl, why? I get that, right? Yeah. But you can't just cut them out of history like that. Right, right, yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Okay. This is the question I've been really wanting to ask you since I started the book, which is I am I'm, I was a dancer. I also was in a production of The Music Man as a child. Thank you very much. No! Yes. I do you remember Woodminster Theater in the Oakland Hills. Vaguely. It's like an outdoor amphitheater. It was anyways, I, I was in it up there anyways. Um, so I, I share a love of the theater. I was a theater major. I was a dancer. I love disco music more than <laughs> anything. I like Donna Summer, I sang Donna Summer in my dance recital, like the whole thing. And I know the history of like the sexism and the racism and, you know, the white male rage despising disco because it was black, brown and queer and women and all these things. Do you think that the reason that disco stopped getting so much hate and has sort of transitioned into being like something that's somewhat acceptable popularly is because hip hop came in? and took that white male rage and took on a lot of the people who hated disco? Mm, that's an interesting thought. I think that could be a part of it. You mean like hip hop stepped up and became like the whipping boy. So disco yeah, didn't have to exactly. be the whipping girl anymore. It was like, you actually had black people saying the shit to the white people <laughs> that they could really be like, he just said, fuck the actual police. <laughs> like, fuck that guy. Instead of being like, Oh, this these outfits are too showy and people are, 
like I mean, dumb and they could actually be like, oh, black people are dangerous and they're doing drugs and they're saying fuck the police. And like now we can just go all in like it was an easier target. I think there could be some validity to that. I think also that like so many black art forms, disco lost the battle, but won the war of everlasting influence. Mm -hmm. And I think also that it was the clear precursor to rap, as you say. So I don't know if, if it is true that hip hop stood up and was like, stand back ladies. Let no, I don't me, know if let, let me throw my my <laughs> cape onto the over the muddy ground for you. Um, even though it would be lovely to think about it that way. But I do think that disco is a clear and distinct precursor to rap. I mean, obviously, Good Times is in Rapper's Delight. So mm-hmm. it was a clear and distinct handoff right there. But disco, I think we love it now because... I guess more people feel comfortable saying out loud that they love disco because it's irresistible. Mm -hmm. And because we always have what I think disco actually was to me, it was a case of it having a really like, I always thought the name existed for absolutely no reason. I don't know why it had to be called that. Hmm. I don't know I don't know why it had to be considered so different from mm. other black music when to me it was just an evolution yeah. of the sound that had been being built upon since we got off the plantations. Mm-hmm. So I never bought into this like disco is this whole new different outside thing that is outside the realm of black. I'm like, what are you guys talking <laughs> about? Are right. you just mad because black girls are at the front right now? Because right. we are. Yeah. Because we are. You can ring my bell. We Ugh. can go to the last dance. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, we, are you hot mad because stuff? of hot stuff? Bad Ugh. girls. What? Donna Summer, my queen, my personal talk, queen. <laughs> yes. Like, what so are much. you? I mean, let's talk about it. Donna Summer had to leave the whole country. Yeah. To get her life. Yeah. Because she, too, her elbows were bumping up against the narrow definitions of what black music was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Donna Summer says, and I quote her in Shine Bright, yes, I grew up in the gospel church. I sang all the songs, but I'm a big belter. I can sing way to the back of the room. I have a broad weight voice. Let me live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You talk about this in the outro of the book. So don't get mad at me. You invited this question. Oh, no. Who or what is not in the book that you wish could have been? I literally can't stand this question because <laughs> There's too I many. met you. And, no, not even <laughs> that. Because I enjoy talking to you so much. And it was so lovely to meet you recently <laughs> in the Bay Area. Um, I know you are asking me in the best of spirits. And so I'm going to say, yeah, I wish I had more Gloria Gaynor speaking of. Mm. of disco I don't believe in one hit wonders as a derogatory term Mm -hmm. I think it says I got my shit off in one song and I'm out (laughs) 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 and you shall remember me forever yeah I look at it as like a huge trophy uh in the culture I wish I had more Mary J Blige in Mm. Mary's worthy of chapters and books and Mm -hmm. 
biopics and documentaries and there's there's songs that Mary J. Blige has created that are can be worthy of a series of documentaries just about the one song. Wow. Yeah. So yes, and I've yeah. interviewed Mary enough times that I do miss her sometimes in Shine Bright. Mm. You know, there's just other people that there's other these one hit wonders like I like Amarine, like uh, yes. Patrice Russian. Um, the great thing about writing is if you're lucky, life is long and you could do it some more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I hope I get to, um, to all of that and even more to the point, I hope that more people get to it. I mean, I, yeah. I think I'm blessed to be living in a time where so many people are paying attention, mm-hmm. deep attention, rigorous and passionate attention. Um, you know, there's, there's Clover Hope, of course, Daphne Brooks. Uh, Donnie Walton, there's just so much going on right now with people, I think, refocusing the lens of history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned the Beatles and I say, yeah, no one says that the Beatles weren't there and didn't do the things. Right. But just can we move off of the Rolling Stones, the Beatles <laughs> and the Beach Boys and the Who and Simon and Garfunkel and Dylan you see how I can keep going? Yeah, yeah. Just for a little bit, y'all. Mm-hmm. Like, can we just stop? Please. <laughs> for a second. Yeah. And these women are, they're not hiding. They're in plain sight. Mm-hmm. They are in the foreground. They are in the background. And and if you read the chapter on the sections about Sissy Houston and the mm-hmm. Sweet Inspirations, and we talk about how much soul singing is in the music of those people that we just mentioned, um, how much, and it's not just, okay, hey, I'm here singing in the background. It's I'm kicking it with y'all. Like we're in the studio together. We're talking, we're vibing. Um, We're inspiring each other. Why is that never mentioned? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 I use the word off and I'll say it again. It's criminal. Yeah. Yeah. That it's not. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I hope no one has asked you yet. Okay. Fingers crossed. Here we go. Right. How right. do you write? Where are you? Are you listening to music? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you write at a certain time of day? How often do you write? I mean, you're a professional writer, so I'm sure it's changed for you over your career. But how did you write, I guess, this book? Okay, first of all, if I had snacks, I would never get anything done. Oh, Danielle, <laughs> no, I this is a th- snack-friendly podcast. <laughs> no, I have to think of the food in the future. Okay. That's what I have to think of. I have hope to work for the food in the future. Toward the food. Got it. Got I'm it. like, I'm going to write for five hours today. And if I write for five hours today, there's tacos for me. Okay. We love this. We love this. Okay. So this is, <laughs> okay. it's like a little, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I need it. It's like, okay, root beer float. That's what I'm going to get. Mm. So, right. Mm-hmm. So, but in seriousness, I was blessed for the last year and a half of Shine Bright because it took me five years to write it. Um, and it's, it should have, but it, it, that was a little bit of a long time. But I was working. I was yeah. at ESPN, and um, and I was t- teaching also um, at the Newhouse School. And I was blessed to be able to resign from my job at ESPN and take on Shine Bright as a full time project. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, my publisher pays me, but I also am blessed and privileged to be in a situation with a partner that allows me to make those type of, of moves. Mm-hmm. So once I was able to work full time. Then I was like, 
then I have to work full time. So I had to get up early because my morning mind, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I could really just be up all night, like writing until three in the morning and I would mm-hmm. wake up in the morning and that work would be so good. Now <laughs> when I do it, it's like, girl, who said what to who? <laughs> oh, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. Like, no, ma'am. Like, I can do some really good editing in the middle of the night. I can I can work from 12 to 3 in the morning on stuff that already exists. I can refine it. Mm-hmm. But to pull stuff new from my brain at 1 in the morning, those mm-hmm. days are gone. So I would just set my alarm for like 4.30. Mm-hmm. And then my goal would be to write until like 11. Okay. One of the quote-unquote rules of the household is I make breakfast. That is my one of my responsibilities at the crib. So I negotiated with my husband out of that responsibility for most days. And I was able to write. It was so great to write. I don't want to make it sound too romantic, but it was so great to write. And then I could see the sun coming up. Mm. So then I would know that I'd already gotten like an hour and a half or two hours in. Mm. And I can't listen to music as I write that has lyrics in it. Because those lyrics are just distracting me from my own words in my head. Now I will pull up things to make sure I have the lyrics right or to hear something and get inspired by it. But I can't just have music on in the background like for the entire five or six hours of work. No, I can't do that. I listen to instrumentals or I just have silence. Sometimes I have the TV on mute. Sometimes I try to get like real like, I am a writer. I am going to light a candle. Okay. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) And sometimes that's really nice. Yeah. You know, but it's not romantic. And sometimes I'm not even at home. Sometimes I'm at the library. Sometimes I'm at the cafe. Um, I like to be out and about hearing, you know, you get, I guess I call it white noise. To just have that kind of just like there's energy around you that's not disturbing you, but you feel a part of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, man, I just would have my headphones on you know, transcribing um, interviews and just trying to write. But actually writing things like not adding in research or figuring out where quotes go into paragraphs, but actually for me, like writing, like if you read the introduction where it's just like, my love for music is intense. Mm -hmm. Like, first of all, I wrote the introduction last out of everything Mm. in the book. But where you're just... Where I'm just writing, like, I'm just stringing sentences together out of my own brain. Mm-hmm. No, that's morning work for me. Mm-hmm. I have to have my my first mind. I have to be coming off my dreams. And mm-hmm. the subconscious has to still be um, noisy in my head. Um, as I have a few questions, I just feel like I absolutely have to ask you. One of them is a quick one that I ask everybody, which is, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Okay, that would be restaurant. Restaurant. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this struggle. is a... This is a word that all the geniuses and like important people tell me. This word comes up all the time. Jason Reynolds, you, Angelina Jolie, Quentin Tarantino. I'm telling you, it's like the craziest word that comes up on this show. Why is it like this? I don't know. Why is it like this? I don't know. And the weirdest part is, is that that's like I'm a terrible speller. And that is one of the words I can spell no problem. But every other word I can't spell, but I'm it's like, so with, funny. With it's like a, genius brain. The U, it's yeah. like the U, the A, like. Yeah. 
You're not alone. You're not alone. I'm glad to know. Yeah, no, you're you're in good company. Okay, this is another thing that came up in the book, but also came up just sort of organically to me. I, I get a sense that you're competitive. You want to be the best. You want to do great work. I also, I mean, you, you sort of say it in a, a few ways here and there throughout the book. Um, and also you wrote this incredibly ambitious and incredible book and you can't do that without being competitive. I don't care what anyone says. You also have been, I have met a few people in the last few months who have worked for you and or with you. And every single one of them has mentioned what an incredible mentor, uh, what an incredible editor, what an incredible person to work for and with. And so I'm wondering how you channel your competitive energy and use it also to help other people that you're with. Okay, so that makes me emotional. It makes me really happy. Um, one is, honestly, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be the best, but it's like, I don't want to be like by myself doing good work. Mm-hmm. It's corny <laughs> and, and, and lonely. Mm-hmm. And who would I speak with at parties yeah. if I didn't have other people who, who love to write and, and, and think deeply about things and 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 just argue about, you know, points that maybe don't matter to everyone else, but because we've thought about it so much and studied it so much and researched it so much, it matters to us. There's nothing quite like the joy of meeting a writer who you can see has just what it takes mm-hmm. if they just work a little bit harder. Mm. And... I'm privileged to know a lot of those people and I've worked with a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. It's really so amazing to see somebody's work go from like a B to an A. Mm-hmm. And don't let me find somebody that we could take from a C to an A. <laughs> because, because you can see, you can, you can, I can see in somebody's copy, even if it's raggedy that they have what it takes. Mm. I can see intention. I can see creativity. I can see passion. I can see rigor. Mm -hmm. But they're paying attention to the details and they're researching. Man, I can work with you in your raggedy ass run-on sentences. (laughs) You know, I can work with you um, if you're... If your lead is really should be your conclusion and your conclusion should be your lead, I can work with you if you don't know that you should probably talk to other people about this to add to your own mm-hmm. opinion or take on a topic. I can show you the joys of a thesaurus and why it's so important to be precise with your adjectives um, if you need them at all, because a lot of times you should be able to build a sentence without them. Use them, you know, don't use them like the main course, as I say, it's seasoning, seasoning. It can remind you that you're starting to sound like other people. And that's just a moment of insecurity. And so please consider going back to your own voice. It is that strong. Ma'am or sir, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you sounding like your friends here? Why are you sounding like your friends in these sentences? You can go right back to your own voice and get it done much more powerfully ma'am young lady (laughs) let's get this done so if those are the kind of things that it just makes me happy a lot of times in those moments I'm not doing my own writing 
A lot of times I separate my life. Like I said, I I was editing at ESPN. Um, It's one of the reasons probably why it was time for me to leave is after ESPN sent me to to Doha, to Qatar, to do a cover story on Simone Biles uh, for ESPN, the magazine, I was for all intents and purposes ready to get back to writing full time. Mm. Like I, there was something about going to a far, a faraway place that I'd never been seeing us an exhibition of sport that I had never experienced. Then going to Houston and spending time two days with Simone Biles, another genius, just a genius, Mm. just a genius. She endured me and we got some good work done. And I worked really hard on that piece. And I worked so hard on it that I knew it was time for me to just get back to writing. Mm-hmm. But then I'm doing writing now. And again, as I say, God willing, life is long. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to editing again at some point to take a break from writing because both things take a lot out of a person. Mm-hmm. They really do. But you make me really happy if you say people say I've been a good editor because I pride myself. I want folks to be good. Like, what are we all doing out of here for not being good? I like, what am I going to read? Yeah. Pardon my language, but like the fuck, like, what am I going to read? What am I going to read if y'all ain't out here like writing good stuff? Like, are you kidding me? And there's so much good work out there right now. So, um, I, I, I really do. I really do appreciate knowing that. Yeah. No, so many people speaking of good work. I have just two more questions. One is, for people who love Shine Bright, what are some other books you might recommend to them to read that are maybe in conversation with your work? Well, I've mentioned Clover Hope's The Motherlode. It's an important book and not just for the way it reads, but also for the way it was conceived with the illustrations and just the way it looks as an object in your, in your, wherever you live. It's a beautiful piece of art as just an item. Um, and Clover is a, a genius about rap and so many other things. Um, I would say Donnie Walton's, I think it's called The Last Revival. Of Opal of, and Nev. Yes, we, done, we, we had uh, Donnie on the show last fall. Isn't she brilliant? A dream. So she's a, a brilliant uh, woman. So that one, Daphne Brooks, Dr. Daphne Brooks of Yale, um, liner notes for uh, The Revolution, which is about uh, Black feminism um, in, in pop. And it's an amazing book. And then I would take it also to some books that inspired me. There's a book by Dr. Paula Giddings called uh, When and Where I Enter the yeah. Impact of Black Women on, uh, on Race and Sex in America. I, I really could not have written this book without mm. that book. I've written, I've read it too many times to count in whole or in part. And I'm blessed to say that uh, Dr. Giddings gave me a blurb for this book. Mm. And I had never spoken to her before that. So, um, Definitely read that. It will change your mind about so many things. And also, if you read Shine Bright and you read When and Where I Enter, you will see so blatantly the influence of that book on Shine Bright, the way she profiled these different women and the way she, but then would add in stories of other women that mm-hmm. kind of were like digressions from the main person. So it's it's not quite a whole bite, but the influence is properly there. Um, so yes, uh, definitely get Dr. Giddings' book as well. Okay, last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read Shine Bright, who would you want it to be? Why are you asking me all these emotional questions? 
I also love your emotion. I love it on Black Girl Songbook. I it's one of my favorite things about you is that you're so human, and I just I really appreciate. It. I'm sorry to make you cry, but it's you're just... not. It's 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 okay. It is good. <laughs> there's many. There's Ella Fitzgerald. There's Ella Fitzgerald, and and there's Whitney. Yeah, and there's Whitney. Thank you so much, Danielle. This has been such a dream. Everyone, you already know this. Shine Bright is our book club pick for May. We're going to be discussing it with Novena on May 25th. You still have time to read it. I couldn't put it down. I read it in two and a half days. I just, I loved it. I just, it's, and I listened to some of the audiobook, which I also loved. And, and then I, when I finished, I started listening to more episodes of Black Girl Songbook, your podcast, because oh. I needed more. So people, there's so much Danielle, brilliant Danielle content out there. There's things for you to read. There's things for you to listen to. Thank you so much, Danielle. I don't even know what to say to you. <laughs> I really don't. You're absolutely brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate deeply your close attention uh, to the text. It matters. It matters. It matters deeply. It matters for me, and I know it matters for all of us. So thank you. Please keep doing what you're doing. Now I'm going to cry. Thank you. Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you again to Danielle Smith for joining us. I also want to say thank you to Carla Bruce Eddings and Andrea Pura for coordinating this interview. This month's book club selection is Danielle's book, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop, which we will discuss on May 25th with Novena Carmel. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. And make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram, at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter, and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>